0: That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Seth Masters. Seth recently retired from Alliance Bernstein, where he spent 26 years across six different careers. He started as an analyst, portfolio manager, and CIO in the emerging market equity area and value stocks. And Over the last decade and a half has served in separate roles as CIO of the private wealth business, CIO of asset allocation, CIO of defined contribution strategies, and CIO of blend strategies. Seth is a true polymath. He's articulate, thoughtful, and wise on a wide range of topics. Our conversation starts with a fascinating discussion of China 30 years ago and today, and then goes into covering contrarian career paths, the critical flaw of benchmark-based investing, structural issues with investment committees, potential causes of the next crisis, and his most recent project, angel investing, primarily in fintech. Please enjoy my conversation with Seth Masters. Steph, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. You graduate from college, and you do what?
1: <laughs> right. So <laughs> I did my undergraduate work um, at, at Princeton, mostly on, on Chinese and Chinese intellectual history. So uh, luckily, I had an amazing set of teachers there and really became fascinated in that part of the world. But, um, but realized that... I and this really, is
0: just to, without putting dates and years on this, oh, right. this is long before China became the, the juggernaut that it is today.
1: Right, which, you know, this sort of gets to, I think, what you'll see is a recurring theme, which is that I've tended to be a contrarian. At the time, if you were interested in Asia, Japan was a thing to study. Right. Because remember, Japan was number one. But for whatever reason, I got really fascinated by China and Chinese, because it was a, an area of the world that I really didn't know, and it seemed very intriguing and then I decided to really focus on, um, at the graduate level, on, on economics, because I thought that was the lens that was most useful to um, really assess China's future through, as opposed to China's past. Uh, and I was really quite convinced that I was going to spend my career as an academic, probably with time at the World Bank and the IMF, and you know that, that whole approach, when I got a, an offer from the Chinese finance ministry, actually, to be a uh, a teacher in China teaching so-called Western economics because at the time there probably was a very short list of people who were Western economists trained but Mandarin fluent. So I kind of realized that that was probably the sort of opportunity that if you didn't do it, you would spend the rest of your life Regretting. And what was that experience like? It was amazing. So I think I you know, learned so much more than I was ever able to teach as a teacher on a couple of dimensions. First of all, just about what was going on in China. It was a very fascinating time because literally the Cultural Revolution had just begun to wind down, although it was in its last throes when I was there. I was there as part of the so-called open-door policy that Deng Xiaoping had launched. Part of that was exposing people in government agencies like the finance ministry, which needed to train all these functionaries to... Keep the machinery of the financial system running because the whole thing was state-owned at that point, including the universities, and uh, and they wanted to expose people to Western economics, but of course they did that gingerly. So one of the things that I learned when I was there was, there, in every single one of my classes, there was someone called a banjang, a, a class leader, who was a party member. Who would actually convene a, a meeting of my students before the beginning of classes where they would be informed solemnly that as part of China's open-door policy, there was going to be this class on Western economics or capitalist economics. But they should all remember that the right economics was Marcus Leninist economics. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they were just being given this exposure for study purposes, which is probably the best advertisement that I could have ever had. Yeah. <laughs> you know, forbidden fruit is pretty attractive everywhere and especially i think that was especially true at that particular time because remember there was a whole generation of chinese who had been effectively pulled out of school during the cultural revolution sent to the countryside and they were just beginning to get to, to figure out ways to get back into the cities and into universities when i was there they were so avid to learn and also they had such a sophisticated understanding of politics you know i've never met people in my life who had that same three-dimensional awareness of all of the things that could lead to political outcomes. And they were way more thoughtful about that than I was. Uh, you know, I think when you live through that kind of turmoil, that's an ability you have to develop. So they that was a very interesting thing for me to see. And then they had all these questions about economics that were quite different from the ones that I would have. What's an example of? Well, that kind I, of I remember one haunting question, which I think is a particularly interesting and relevant one for all of us to think about now, which is: once a student came up to me and asked, "Is there any way that economics can help us understand why it seems to be so much easier to destroy things than to build them?" And on the other hand, when it came to a lot of the basic aspects of economics that we think are so important, they really had a hard time understanding them. They, they were all drawn towards macro because they really understood how a top-down system could work. But micro was really hard for them to grasp because most of these were people who had never had the opportunity to make a free decision in their life. It was always constrained. And so for, for that reason, they, they, they really didn't have an easy time figuring out what the market mechanism really was and how it was supposed to be. The whole idea of the invisible hand and the supply and demand equilibrium was very counterintuitive. Yeah. And I had to spend actually a lot of time both with the administration but especially with with my students explaining why macro was actually almost useless for people in China because it was all based on a set of institutions that right. didn't exist there and actually still don't in many ways.
0: Yeah. How did that experience inform over the last decade when China has really set its foot onto the world stage in a big way? What did you learn from that experience that might have a different lens than someone who's, say, just been in the U.S. looking at what's happened in China about their success and where you think it goes from here?
1: Well, um, that's a really th- interesting question. I I think so much has changed between what China was then and what it is now that um, that, it, that that really doesn't tell us so much about China's future necessarily. One of the reasons I was so interested to go to China then, too, was my graduate thesis was about how China might have a potential to grow way more than people thought. Actually, I wrote two two theses-like things, one which was shorter, about the China famine in 1959, which at the time was not something that people had been talking about, but uh, it was possible to deduce from the, the data that did exist a lot of people had actually died and starved to death or died from... Most people actually in famines die from other things like disease. And I remember being quite stunned when it turned out, yeah, you could figure out that there had been a famine because nobody had told us that when we were studying China. Um, and 10 million people at least had died and it turns out it was more than that. But. Anyway, so that, that, that was interesting and gave me sort of a familiarity with Chinese statistics as they really are, as opposed to the ones that, the artificial ones that are public. But then as I started to play more with you know what was going on, I, I realized you could make some, you could model some possibilities for what China might do economically as a result of the fact that it, it had an extended period when it had been really deprived of a lot of basic technology. And if they could harness that their economy could grow for a sustained period of time. Basic a technology f- meaning. Remember, it's economics, so it's a pretty abstract concept. But you know, the, essentially, what I was trying to do is figure out. Remember, at the time, China was viewed as sort of a basket case and viewed mostly through a political lens. The question was, you know, could this be a country that could grow at five or six or seven percent for some period of time and become, instead of desperately poor, could it become middle income, maybe and the conclusion was actually there was a really good chance that that, that that could happen as opposed to what most people thought. And I underestimated how much growth there could be. But uh, but you could definitely it was definitely palpable even when I was in China that there were these seeds that were being planted that could really lead to a lot of growth. And I think what we know now is that that model has now delivered pretty much everything it could, because the success of China over the last thirty years, thirty plus years has really been driven by a model that was focused on very, very high savings rate feeding huge levels of investment. So the savings rate in China has, over the last decade or so, been around 50% of GDP. And I don't, I'm not aware of any other large country that has ever had a savings rate that high over a sustained period, ever. Most of that's been invested. And when you're investing that much, even if there's a huge amount of waste and malinvestment, even only a third of that is actually productive. You, know, you can just imagine that you're going to get a fair amount of growth spinning off from that. Um, and even the stuff that's malinvested in, in the short run can deliver some, call it phantom growth, because if you build a bunch of crappy roads that you don't really need to have, you still get some additional economic activity. The multiplier is much lower, but there's some. And you know, it depends on exactly whose numbers you truly believe, but the 7 to 10% growth rates that were typical of the Chinese GDP for most of the last, you know, certainly 15 years, almost all of it was fueled by that kind of investment-driven and export-focused manufacturing-type activity. The problem is that can't be sustained. And in fact, that's what's been crashing in China, which um, people are very worried about because you know, most people take a backward looking view. If that was the engine of growth, then that must be a big problem because it's over. But that's not necessarily the next stage in China's development. And, you know, if you think about other countries that have had successful paths to from poor to wealthy, they've all made phase shifts at various points along that way. And it um, was true of the United States, too. We went through that same process just a lot less rapidly than China's gone. The, the next stage for China is they really have to shift from a an investment in manufacturing-driven economy to a consumption and service-driven economy, that's definitely in process. And by the way, that part of GDP is actually growing quite robustly and will continue to grow, I think, for another at least five to seven years, maybe even 10, but also not forever. And because that's growing at almost 10% a year now, and it's about half of the Chinese economy, that's why China's economy can still grow five to 6% a year for- without growth in infrastructure spend for about another yeah. I'll call it maybe 7 years. And I think that's going to be that next chapter. I think the big problem that the Chinese face there's two um, is that eventually that's going to begin to decline as well and that's that's a demographic issue. China's demographics are rapidly shifting from very healthy as in you know a lot of working age people to very Japanese like. Yeah. And as that occurs you're going to get the same problems you had in Japan, savings rates are going to start really dropping very fast as people stop basically working and begin consuming whatever their retirement uh, packages are. And and then you're also going to see a whole bunch of other structural changes that that drive off of that. And I think it's very unclear that China's done all the things. That they they by the way, China's leadership is very aware of this problem, so it's not a surprise. But that that next chapter that starts, call it seven-ish years from now. Um, is very unclear. And that's one reason why, from a political standpoint, have to be really a focus today to keep everything together while they try to engineer that big set of transformations that they hope to have ready by, call it, you know 2025.
0: So with that knowledge base of what's happening in the country and those views, what do you do with your personal capital? Are you investing in China? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, but not to a huge extent because the problem with the Chinese capital markets is that they tend to be extraordinarily distorted on both sides. When they're up, they're up way too much. When they're down, they go down way too much. And that's a lot because they're so policy-driven and also because they're so constrained. So in China, basically, if you're a Chinese person, until very recently, you really only had three options for what to do with your money. You could keep it in the bank, where by Chinese bank yields are a little bit higher, but still four or 5% is not all that much. Or you could put it into houses. So people who could were buying houses avidly, or you could put it into stocks. And so when there's only those three investments, and they're all domestic, you can imagine that when times are great, given the fact that there is so much savings and so few places to put it, you get incredible bubbles in house prices and, and, and domestic stocks. And when times are terrible, or when government policy is to crack down on excessive speculation, it all goes in the opposite direction. And you know that that means if you're a very careful, active investor, you can actually do pretty well. And certainly, in a modest part of your portfolio, you should have somebody who's a good China stock picker picking some of the stocks for you. But the beta is so undependable that you want to be careful not to make that too big a part of your portfolio
0: let 's talk about your career path at Bernstein you got there relatively early on, and what was how did you first get to bernstein
1: well when i when I finished my two year stint in China, I um, decided to to not be an expat to, but I wanted to come back to the u s and spent five years in consulting, which was a great way to really Learn how the real world worked over here yeah. and uh, and see how big companies of all kinds first of all encounter sometimes existential problems that they have a really hard time understanding because if they're successful big companies, the idea that they could face an existential problem is a hard one to grapple with right and it 's also hard if you 've had a successful formula for sometimes decades to recognize that.
0: And was there an early project that you worked on that crystallized that idea? Oh yeah,
1: one of of the most interesting ones was working for one of the biggest tobacco companies in the world and doing a, a bunch of research and then realizing that their strategy, which was to win every single legal case involving lung cancer victims who had been smokers, and part of that strategy was to assert that there was no such thing as an underage smoker that actually was part of the culture and it became pretty clear to me that that was not going to work sooner or later it was going to become apparent that that would break down and that the the fact that basically the lawyers were running the the thought process and the strategy for this and these were immense very profitable companies yeah. was going to become an existential threat so I made that case, which was extremely unpopular, interestingly, not just with the company, but also with with, with my bosses at the consulting company. (laughs) Um, But it was was a really good example of how really getting the strategy right is, first of all, very important, and secondly, much more difficult than you would think if you just read books. Yeah, Because there's all so many dimensions of, of this. So the reason I actually joined Bernstein is, like every consultant, I'd been looking for opportunities and hadn't found anything that was more... It looked to me like it was more compelling than the work I was doing as a consultant, even though the the one thing about being a consultant is a lifestyle is really horrible. So I definitely wanted to find something else. And then I had the good fortune just to really literally trip across Bernstein, which was having an existential moment of its own. You know, Bernstein, this was in uh, in 1990, was facing terrible headwinds from the markets. 1990 was a really difficult year for most active managers, but especially if you were a value investor, the numbers looked horrible for for Bernstein as a firm. It was, um, you know, it was underperforming that year by about twenty percentage points, or wow. clients like to say two thousand basis points. Uh, not a good thing. Not a good thing. But what what really struck me was that the firm had come to the conclusion strategically that to be delivering a good service to its customers to its clients, it needed to offer. Not just U.S. investments, but also non-U.S. ones—a kind of now obvious point, but back then it really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Most firms back then were very geographically limited. There, were, there was this concept of home country bias, and so despite the fact that the environment was so adverse at that point, Bernstein had committed to globalizing its research and, and embarking on what had been by to, what was to be by far the biggest investment it had ever made. I, possibly the toughest time to do that. And so they were looking for people who could be non-U.S. research analysts, and I fit the bill. And from my perspective, I was just so impressed by the quality of the people. And, you know, Bernstein at the time was this very plucky, quite small, independent research organization. How many people was small like that? At that time, so I was on the buy side from the beginning. Um, but I think the total number of buy side analysts in the firm was about Ten and the total oh, number wow. of sell side analysts, I think at that time was actually about the same.
0: So really small. It was really
1: small. Oh, and when I joined, yeah, we managed a little bit less than fourteen billion dollars, which was down from seventeen billion before the yeah. the market tanked. Which today there are some quarters when the firm takes in more than that. So it's a uh, it's a world where there were at that time a lot of investment organizations, but Bernstein to me really stood out because it had such a focus on research excellence, because there was this well, really talented set of people who had convinced themselves that, that no matter how awful things might be right now, the right thing to do was to globalize the the research effort. And, um, and I've, I've had the great good fortune of being able to step into that at that time. Something I really tell people about from a career perspective, too, is the tendency right now, for example, when I see people starting out in their careers, is that First, everybody's first choice seems to be to get a job at Google, right. which I can totally understand. Or Facebook. Or Facebook. But then think about that. You're joining a firm, if you go to either of those places or any number of other incredibly successful new media companies or new tech companies, that basically has been on an incredible upward trajectory for, an, at this point, almost a decade. And it's been the number one destination for really smart, hardworking people for about that long. So if you join them now, where are you going to be in the pecking order? And things do cycle. So when that happens, first of all, they're not going to be used to the issues of constraints and decline. And secondly, what do you think is going to be their response to that? They're probably going to be letting the people go who are the newest arrivals. It's, so it's going to be harder to rise and more risky on the downside. It's not what you think. Now, it still could be a very good strategy to spend a couple of years at a firm like that to learn, but going to actually going to Bernstein for me was sort of the equivalent thing. There were a lot of safe choices in the financial industry. This clearly wasn't one of them, but I think it, it had a much better upside-downside risk profile than yeah. most people would appreciate. I think that's probably true today. I would always say find a great company with a great team of people that is currently under stress but still looking to hire. That's a very... <laughs> Wonderful combination if you can find that and that's not what most people are looking for right right and uh, so in any case so so that, that that was my entree into the asset management business
0: and you've had you know, we've talked about it, you've had a number of different careers within the same firm and have seen things as a head of asset allocation on the private wealth side on the pension side you've spent your career in active management of the public equity markets and a lot's changed, and particularly in the last decade. How do you how do you think about what value added is for an active manager today?
1: That's a great question. So, first of all, I think a lot of people have defined value added historically as your performance versus a benchmark, and that is very easily measurable, which makes it attractive to many organizations because it means you can... Especially if
0: you can pick your benchmark. <laughs> especially if you can pick your, <laughs> your
1: benchmark, right? I would argue it's one of the least important things you should worry about. The most important thing is what is the problem you're trying to solve with that money in the first place? So for example, if you're either a pension fund as, working as a fiduciary on behalf of the retirees who's responsible, you know, and you've taken on that responsibility, or if you're If you're an individual with money in the four hundred one k, the problem you're trying to solve is you basically want to make sure that you're going to actually have a comfortable retirement. Duh, right? Mm -hmm. Does it matter if you did one percent better than the S and P this year? I mean, last year the S and P did really really well. So actually, if you did five percent worse than the S and P, it's probably great. And. There'll be a year in the next few when the S&P will do really, really badly, which yep. means if you did 5% better than the S&P, it's still terrible. Yeah. <laughs> this is not rocket science. Yeah. This is very simple. But I think the entire industry, um, unfortunately, has, fo- has been very focused on exactly the wrong thing because what's really important to most use cases that I'm aware of is an outcome. It may not just be retirement, you know if you're if you're norway and you're running the sovereign wealth fund on behalf of future generations of norwegians there's a lot of elements of what they're trying to fund and how they're trying to do it that that matter but you can always define a set of objectives and the real issue if you have a pot of money is how can you maximize the chances that you'll meet those objectives and minimize the risk of failure those are not the same thing right, right. In fact, any time you build a portfolio, you really have to think about both sides of that equation and getting the right balance between them is a function of precisely what objectives you're setting. In some cases, for example, with retirement, if you think about it, what you really want to do is minimize the risk of failure. You do not want to run out of money before you die. If you achieve that problem, maximizing the standard of living you have in retirement is nice, but it's not the need to have, right? And so understanding how you set those parameters of, maximizing the likelihood of success and minimizing the risk of failure and adapting them to the particular use case you've got, I think is the single most important thing that people do. Now, in my experience, most boards and other bodies that are overseeing pots of money end up spending surprisingly little time on that issue of what are we here to achieve and how do we make sure that we're maximizing the chances of succeeding at that and minimizing the risks of failure. They tend to spend a ton of time on... Let's take this huge pot of money that we have, divide it up into lots of little buckets, set a benchmark for each of them, and look at exactly which buckets we are doing a little bit better than that benchmark in or a little bit worse, and then focusing especially on the ones where we're doing a little bit worse because there must be a problem. And to me, that's a massive governance error. It's sort of like someone deciding that they're going to check every newspaper in the world for for grammatical and typographical errors as opposed to understand whether or not there's fake right. news going on.
0: Well, you know, we we've sat on an investment committee together that probably is one of the more functional ones in the scheme of things. Why do you think that's the case? Because when when investment committee members come for their, you know, four times a year meeting, they all have full-time jobs, they're all busy and If you could align the objectives with the way that those people are spending their time, probably everyone would feel better about their contribution and that you were steering the ship in the right direction. And yet, that isn't what happens most of the time.
1: Right. Well, part of the problem is that there's lots of rules and regulations about what investment committees have to do. And they actually, in most jurisdictions, have to spend a certain amount of time looking at the portfolio and evaluating the portfolio's performance versus benchmarks because that's what the rules say. But I think the other issue is it's become sort of behavioral that people assume that's what boards do all the time. You don't need to spend more than a pretty modest proportion of a board's total time budget on these things. But but it ends up being very difficult to get into the bigger existential questions because honestly they are so difficult to define and measure. If you just wanted to ask somebody, okay, what is your retirement problem? And how would you define success? And how would you define failure? I think what you'd find is that's actually a pretty difficult and sometimes even painful discussion to have. Most people don't like to confront that kind of issue. Yeah, It's very uncertain. It's very personal. And it's a lot easier to basically say, ah, I'm not sure, but... Look, my portfolio is only up this much as of three seconds ago. And look, this benchmark is up more. I'm very upset about that. And that same process ends up happening yeah. in, at a much higher level with huge multi-hundred billion dollar investors who are grappling with questions that are even more difficult to define, often very political. And even if you did define the problem, not so easy to measure. So it's it, it's easy to understand in my view why we've ended up where we've ended up, but the problem is it ends up leading to poor decisions. Yeah.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember: 36025 and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. Is there something to learn on the institutional side than from the private wealth business. Because I know, spending most of my career in the institutional side, there's always this dismissive, oh, we're the smart money and they're not. And yet, when you talk to private wealth advisors, and particularly after the fiduciary rule, there's much more focus on the financial planning aspect. And just to your point, let's make sure we're at the right goals. Hey, the implementation we can do from a low-cost vehicle, we'll figure that out. and, you know, even Jason Zweig has said, you know, that the asset management piece might be becoming commoditized. It's the financial planning piece for, for the wealth of us. I know you spent time on both sides of that table. And what are your impressions of – is that right, that some of the goal-based aspects of, of the private wealth side um, could be applied to the institutional side? And, and is it done better?
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a great point. And I think there is a lot that, that, that each side can learn from the other. So let me give a concrete example. You're right that, especially since the fiduciary rule, you know, there is more, much more focus in the, especially the private wealth business, on really having a smart investment plan and also working out objectives and strategies to meet them. I think that... Um, you can apply that same kind of thinking in many ways to, um, for example, foundations and endowments and sovereign wealth funds. So here's an example. I'd say most of the um, endowments I know are laser, laser focused, again, on performance. In that case, they're probably also thinking about risk-adjusted performance, which is good. That's a little bit better, because at least it's looking at both sides of that coin. But what they rarely do is actually link their spending policy and their fundraising policy to that equation. If you think about it, there's a lot of things you can do that are not about either asset allocation or investment implementation that have probably even more impact on the longevity and sustainability of an endowment program. So, for example, most endowments don't really think strategically about the kind of spending that they're doing every year. You can make a decision you can say, look, there have to be at least, call it 50% of the expenditures we make, which are going to be no greater than X in any given year and that will not last longer than a maximum of Y years. Why would you make that decision? Because from an investment mindset, if you have enough of your total spend that's in small discrete lumps that are time-bound It makes it a lot easier for you to have elasticity in your spending policy. Most educational institutions preclude themselves from doing that by having the vast predominance—usually with most universities, it's almost 100%—of their spend being obligations they're locked into for many, many years, and will have traumatic effects if they cut them fast. Now, why is that important? Because if you have a big down year and you cannot adjust your spending quickly, you're guaranteeing that you're gonna be forced to spend into principle. Into principle. At the worst possible time. That's when you should be investing. But if you could get get the community to understand this and to agree, oh, wait a second, our spending policy is a strategic element in our financial survival that can lead to much, much better outcomes in the long run. And it can mean that you can get those better outcomes with less investment risk. Right, right. Nobody does that that I know of. Nobody.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've never heard somebody talk about effectively some form of fixed and variable cost in the structure of a... Why not? It's because there's
1: this blindness. And I think that's, that's one example. There's many dimensions to this problem that I think aren't addressed well. And it's precisely because we have this very narrow view that investment is about beating benchmarks as opposed to investment is about achieving objectives and yeah. what are those objectives and how how do you minimize how do you de-risk them as much as possible and can that
0: change i mean as you as you've been in a lot of different seats in front of a lot of these types of institutions knowing this all along pervasive throughout the investment industry is this question of sort of job risk the risk of Being different can it change and if it can how can we get from here to you know 10 years from now something where there's a better matching of consideration of both sides of the balance sheet which is what we're talking about in the investment process
1: yeah I think that what happens um, in in the world is that when everything else fails people will try something new and so In the financial world especially, the way that materializes is that there's always a crisis, and that leads to more experimentation. By the way, one thing that's fascinating is how many startups, not just in financial services, but in general, were founded in 2008 and 2009. Yeah, It's incredible how fertile a year that was. Of course, there were a lot of talented people who were suddenly out of a job, which is part of it, but also, when the existing rules of the game clearly have failed, is a great time for people to essentially open their minds to possibilities that they wouldn't have considered otherwise. I mean, you So the
0: thought is right now, we haven't had that for-
1: A, a long, long time. time. I, I think that's actually a really important realization. And so it will take a while, first of all, because it always does, because a new idea doesn't really materialize fully formed. Every single successful startup I've seen so far has pivoted at least once and often multiple times They had an idea that sounded good, but it turned out they hadn't thought about X. And then they pivoted to something else, and then they realized they also hadn't thought about Y. And in addition, even the startups that have an idea that turns out to be a really great idea tend to learn that the process of making that into a business, almost like a video game, has multiple stages in it, and the skill set that you need to master stage one doesn't necessarily work when you hit level two and graduating from level two to level three is probably even harder right and and so because of that i think you will see change happening but a not in a linear fashion it will it will be stimulated by whatever the next crisis is and b it will take longer than you think
0: so in this industry investment management do we have a crisis approaching
1: the simple answer is yes because we always do But I think there's a couple of basic forces that are worth thinking about. The first is, we have had an extended period of enormous amounts of liquidity sloshing around the world. And that's basically been an artifact of excess savings, in my opinion. A lot of it coming from countries like China that have, as we discussed earlier, going to be changing structurally. And for that reason, among a few others, you will see an end to this period of abundant liquidity. Going from abundant liquidity to not abundant liquidity has always been traumatic in the capital markets every single time it's happened. And the reason I think is that whenever people have a lot of liquidity, think of it as margin of error, they try a bunch of things that they otherwise wouldn't try. And we've had less of that in this cycle than you would have expected because 2008 was such a harsh environment that there was a lot more prudence than you would normally see in a high liquidity environment for a while. But the last few years, you've begun to see reversion to form, right? There is a lot more debt being piled up by people who probably will discover that they can't really run a business with that much debt. but, But the low cost of debt and the easy access to it made it irresistible. And when it turns out that the terms aren't as attractive and they, aren't, you know, they, they don't have that same equation. I think what you'll see is what you usually do. There'll, there'll be a significant rise in credit problems, and you'll also see that some business models that seemed like they were very robust aren't. The second thing I think that is not unrelated to this is we've been through an extremely long period of low volatility, and that has a whole bunch of consequences. The first is people are just not taking risk into account the way they should. But even more disturbing, in my mind, is when people do take risk in, into account; they do it with risk models that are calibrated to the, the current, current environment. Yeah, sure. And so, and this actually relates back to the liquidity problem too. Um, think about this: if you if you think, okay, I am as a person equipped with a risk thermometer, which obviously doesn't exist in real life, but it tells me how much downside risk I can absorb, and I can live with ten percent drops in my portfolio but 20 percent is too much so if you're looking at the world through almost any risk model that's been tuned to the way the world currently has been working for the last five or six years it will spit out a number that tells you just how much downside risk your portfolio currently has but of course that's all based on the assumption that the world will stay low vol Right. right now i don't think it will because it never has And especially if we are going to see a transition from abundant liquidity to less abundant liquidity, the risk of something going wrong and the penalty for that thing going wrong when it does are going to be higher than what we've experienced recently. And when that happens, all the risk models will start registering what they think are four- and five-standard deviation events, which really aren't. The fact is the risk wasn't properly measured to begin with, and therefore it led people probably to say, logically, oh – I'm not taking enough risk now, because that's what it looks like today, they therefore act on that and then end up with far, far more risk than they thought they had, which also means that they will then have to make decisions that they didn't anticipate were ever going to be needed, so they'll be painful.
0: In a lot of the conversations about public market investing, we've had this big move to indexation, there's this notion, Michael Movison, who's uh, just talked to recently, talked the paradox of skill, and that active management is getting that much more challenging as a result. But there's also this question of, is it secular or cyclical? And is there a scenario you could think of where the opportunities for active managers get better and markets that have seemingly gotten increasingly efficient in in one sense reverse and become less efficient over time?
1: So, yeah, I think that those those things are... Definitely good possibilities. Look, I think the paradox of skill is an, a really interesting thing to think about. That, you know, when I first joined Bernstein, I, I could really feel that one of the things that made Bernstein unique was it had this tremendous investment discipline. It had a view that value investing was really a logical hypothesis to hold about the world. That when things got terrible for a company or for a whole sector or for a whole country, there were there were good reasons to believe that markets would overreact, and you know it turns out subsequently that we now can explain exactly what those reasons are because it's wired into our brains. you know right. anybody who's read Daniel Kahneman's books knows what the answer to that is at that point we didn't know why, but we could observe that it happened, and also that it was actually a hard bias to overcome because it was so ingrained and Therefore, an organization that was really focused on value investing had to have a strong culture to stick with it at tough times, and a systematic approach. And back then, we used the dividend discount model, which was, I think at the time, Bernstein was one of two companies in the entire world that had one, which was basically just a bunch of tools and processes to help overcome all of these innate decision flaws that we have as human beings, because frankly, when humans were first evolving... A few hundred thousand years ago, success in the stock market was not a major you know, influence <laughs> on who survived and who didn't. So in that case, I think you can really see that from where things were call it three decades ago to today, the world really has gotten much more challenging because now there are literally thousands and thousands of value investing firms. Um, not all of them are good but many of them are pretty good so just being a value investor isn't enough you have to be a better in value investor than everybody else right and i think that that's the paradox of skill that you were Hmm. highlighting and i think that that has made it tougher but on the other hand i think the other thing that's happened as a result is there's a lot more free riding in the environment in many ways that are not apparent so for example Now, everybody also appreciates the importance of risk. Another thing that Bernstein did really early is incorporate risk models into its investment processes, into the systematic part, and recognize that every single thing that you thought was a return factor had a risk attached to it, which is so basic when you think about it, but that was very original thinking once upon a time. Well, I think almost every decent investor today is more or less on board with that. But here's the thing. Risk models are pretty complicated, clunky things to develop, having built a couple and also used third-party ones. I've seen that from both sides. So almost everybody these days actually uses risk models that someone else developed. There's only a few someone else's, and they're all competing with each other in the marketplace. So guess what? There's convergent thinking on this, which is really bad because everybody's using the same risk model, which is itself a risk. So what I think you're going to see is that the people who understand where those vulnerabilities are and think about that creatively are going to make a lot of money off of it. So,
0: right. There, there are only a certain number of models, a certain number of developers. Are there two or three things that you know from having looked at these that you think are a potential flaw that someone will either trip up on or take advantage of if they understand it?
1: Uh yeah. So the first thing I think is that um most risk models that exist out there commercially are designed for the marketplace. So they're trying to answer the questions that people are generally asking. And most of those questions are about one of two things. One of, one is the tracking error question what we we were yep. discussing before. The you know, how do I look versus my benchmark? And on, on for that particular question what you typically find is if you're commercially trying to build a, a successful risk model, you want to capture the things that people are are doing in most portfolios most of the time. What I always worry about when you look at those risk models is, okay, well, so what does that mean is being left off the table? What, what's, what's the residual? Most of you people do the opposite. They focus almost all their effort on looking at the systematic factors that the model quote explains, unquote. And they think of that as what the risk in their portfolio is. And that's not thats not a bad idea, especially if the risks that they're focusing on are actually tightly linked to the way you make your portfolio investments. So if you have an investment process that's focused on those variables, that's a very good thing to be aware of. But if you have an investment process that is really not based on that, and the countries you happen to be in or the sectors you happen to have chosen are just a byproduct of something else you were doing...
0: You're gonna miss your risk. You're
1: gonna completely misunderstand what your risk was. And you're also you're not gonna be able to integrate that into the process you use. And the second thing is most of most risk models have become much more adaptive over time. Meaning if risk has recently been low, they incorporate that into their forecast for what will happen, which is not necessarily wrong because over short periods of time risk is somewhat sticky. And if you want to make a good forecast for the next, call it Six months. Well, the
0: point is it is until it's not. Exactly.
1: And when it stops being sticky, nobody knows exactly where it goes. But typically, it actually doesn't just go back to the mean. It actually overshoots. Yeah. And finally, another thing that's a problem is all the data that people need for their risk model is most available for probably the last five or 10 years. Almost no one has risk models that use data that goes back further than 10 years, let alone 20 or 30 So let me tell you why that's very problematic in my view. There's this thing called inflation. It happens every once in a while, but it hasn't happened for 30 years, at least not in almost any country that people care about. Right now, it's, by the way, a devastating problem in Venezuela, but I'm not aware of a single risk model that is even... Incorporating Venezuela. Incorporating that, right. right. And there is no material evidence that inflation is going to be a problem now either. So everybody's basically just assumed it won't happen. My view, again, as a contrarian is, that's the riskiest time. right? Because you're going to have policymakers as well who are using, if not the same, then similar risk models, who are going to be making their decisions in that same kind of vacuum. And so when we do have the next inflationary surprise, it's going to throw all of this completely haywire, um, and, and it's going to be underpriced in the market as well. The issue I see with the risk models today is that they are Systematically designed to blind the people making investment decisions and policy decisions from some of the biggest risks that exist. It's not intentional, but it's a byproduct yeah. of the way that all the incentives run.
0: You know, I'm sitting here nodding my head because I've heard these types of stories for a long time, but I know a lot of people probably haven't. And what I'm turning to is demographics of, of participants in the markets and participants in policy decisions. And I, I wonder, 30 years is a long time, right? You're now retired after a 30-year yeah. career. Um, at some point in time, as these risks – you know, hopefully these risks don't surface in a big way in the near term, more and more of the participants in the markets, more and more of the policy decision makers need to look back and study – history of something they didn't live through. And it's a totally different perception.
1: Yeah. And in fact, it's not coincidental. If you look at inflationary episodes, they tend to occur about a generation apart. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that inflation is such a huge systemic problem when it happens. And so devastating to both the financial system and also the political system when it happens, because it completely restacks the deck, that it kind of inoculates people against a recurrence of those stupid policies for the generation of people who suffered from it. But then when that memory gradually dissipates is when you have the most risk. I think that's a really, I think that's a really important observation. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's a sobering thought. So where do you see interesting investment opportunities?
1: Well, I'm right now focusing on a part of the investing world that I actually had never had the opportunity to look at before, which is startups. And it's very, very interesting for somebody who comes at this from decades of looking at mature companies as a large investor. This is the exact opposite, being an individual investor in tiny little entities that are at the very beginning of their life cycle. I think that most of the large liquid asset markets in the world are now getting pretty fully priced. I think they're also relatively more efficient than they've been in the past. What I think is was interesting to me as an investor is there's a lot of very straightforward structural reasons why startups are not going to be accessible to large institutions ever, and they're also structurally very, very inefficient and probably always will be. So I think there's a tremendous amount of potential value add if you're an investor and you figure out how to crack that problem. So there's always going to be, if you think about the paradox of skill, the things that become well understood will always be less investable. But the things that are hard to access, either because it's infrastructure that everybody's using that has itself got a fly inside, or in the case of, um, of early stage investments, you know, startup companies, they're just so small. And think about this. The average startup the, the, that I'm looking at today has often no revenue, or if it does, it has a paltry amount. that's probably not coming from the same thing that's gonna ultimately make it into a successful business if it ever does succeed. And it doesn't need that much capital. But it takes, if anything, more research to understand it than you would need for a mature company for that exact reason. Mm -hmm. And even if you did do that research and came to the conclusion that it was an exciting opportunity, you can't invest a lot of money in it because it doesn't need the money.
0: Right. Right.
1: So a big company can never access that part of the market. And therefore, it's always going to be very, very inefficient. Having really spent a lot of time and effort in trying to make for better financial services for investors of all kinds. One thing that I became convinced of is that there's a lot of new technology that is now beginning to develop that over the next decade or two is going to transform the industry. And I really thought the only way to understand it was to really roll up my sleeves and sit down with the people who are working on it, trying to understand what they're doing and why.
0: Are there particular areas or groups of technological applications that you're seeing in this in this work that you're doing?
1: I think that there are a lot, although it's interesting, the closer I get to this, the more I think that it's hard to say which technologies will ultimately be the ones that matter most. So for example, these days, everybody's talking about blockchain and distributed ledger technology, which is very interesting. And I think we'll have some pretty deep impacts over time, although it's still not totally apparent <laughs> what they'll be. But I think there are many, many others. So I think artificial intelligence, AI, but especially machine learning and, and particularly something called deep learning are probably going to be very important for pockets of what the industry does today.
0: So how have you sought to navigate this universe? Or this is a completely different ecosystem than how you've spent your career previously.
1: Yeah, so it does mean basically starting over in that sense, which is really exciting and interesting. The way that made sense to me is to, first of all, become an angel investor. And there are groups that do that. I joined one of them called New York Angels. I think it's really important if you're going to be an angel investor to be in a group for a whole bunch of reasons. One is you're not going to know what you're doing, so at least do it with other people who possibly do know what they're doing. And also. You want to have a critical mass because the people who are entrepreneurs trying to start a company have limited budgets of time and, and you don't want to abuse it. And if you're, in, if you're an audience of one listening to them tell their story, knowing that they're going to have to do the same thing another hundred times to get the money they need to start their company, that, that's really not fair to them. That is, that is creating failure. Whereas if you have a syndicate of you know 150 people in the room, which is about the size of New York Angels... At least that's less inefficient from their point of view, probably, and also there's some best practices that I think angels can can help impose on themselves and and help you know, with with the process too so that it doesn't take too long to do all the due diligence that it takes to go through the process and then another thing that i've I've become involved with is um being a uh, a mentor in an accelerator program. there's a number of these around and in, in new York there's I think now almost half a dozen of them. And so I'm involved in in one particular one that is affiliated with Barclays. So do you tend,
0: and as a mentor, are you specifically working with the companies you've invested with?
1: No, actually, I'd say it's almost, if anything, the opposite. So now, because I'm an angel and also a mentor, I'm seeing companies, and I'm also bumping into people in other ways too. And the combination of all that just gives me a non, hopefully non-random sample of all of the ideas that are out there and the potential deals that there are to be done. Um, but it's like anything in an illiquid market; you really don't know. And one of the the biggest challenges, whenever you're dealing with startups, in particular, probably when you're dealing with investments in general, is how do you engineer the playing field so it's slightly tilted in your direction, so you have positive selection as opposed to negative selection bias in your in in the non-random subset of the literally thousands and thousands of companies that are being created every year you're only going to have time i think probably in a typical week i end up at least learning about maybe a couple dozen companies probably talking to something per week on the on the order of you know four or five of them and then selecting maybe in a given week one of those to to really focus on a little bit of which who knows? Maybe you know one out of five or one out of 10 of those will end up being something I'd want to invest in. So there's a very, very sharp funnel. And, and what you hope is that you're, the top of the funnel is you're holding over the parts of you know, the rain cloud that are raining good drops. And then <laughs> as, as it collects, you're hopefully narrowing down the very best ones of those so that the stuff that comes out is really good. You mentioned best practices. So I'd love to
0: First here, what, are the, what have you learned in this period of time about what some of the, these important best practices are?
1: I think the, the single most important thing is to remember that the odds are really, really long that any given startup will succeed. And so you have to, first of all, have an immense amount of respect for the people who dedicate their life to trying. Yeah. And recognize, too, that you know, if you really want to engage with them, hopefully you can provide them resources that are not just financial but also advice. And that, you know, if you can do that, that can really help them succeed, which is a really good feeling. And it can also be very rewarding in all kinds of dimensions. You know, you can learn a lot about what's going on in an industry, which is a big motivation for me. You can also learn a lot about people and how they both succeed and also what their key potential derailers might be and how to help them navigate that. And, And also, hopefully, you can be part of some of the deals that actually work out, which pay for all the ones that don't.
0: That's sort of the classic venture capital model. Where do you see interesting investment opportunities?
1: One thing I I started out thinking is maybe I should just focus on FinTech, financial services oriented um, startups. And then I realized, no, that could be a big mistake because a lot of the most interesting enabling technologies are not necessarily going to be applied to financial services first, but they may be the things that matter most. So I'm, I'm focusing now on a combination of taking advantage of my subject matter expertise in financial services, where I think I can probably help the startups more, but also looking at startups in other areas that have interesting technologies that might be applicable to a financial service company someday, because I can learn from them. For example, one one really great area that I think is going to be potentially very important for financial services down the road is uh, the Internet of Things. Essentially, historically, most objects in the world are basically just dumb, like we're talking into this microphone, but it does its job. It's not aware of anything else apart from the fact that it needs to vibrate as I speak and translate that into something that you can store uh, for the podcast. But sensors are becoming cheaper and cheaper, and connectivity is becoming easier and easier and more and more widespread. It's only a matter of time before almost every object in the world ends up having embedded sensors that are connected to the internet of, of everything else. Now, how could that work? I mean, one, one company that I've invested in realized that that problem of figuring out how to make that work, is something that most big industrial firms are not going to be good at because it involves a whole set of domain expertise that is not in their- classic creative disruption. Classic thing, right? So their hope is that they can be a really good, essentially integrator of all the technology, which is pretty complicated. So you have to basically figure out how to put the right kind of sensor on a, a, a chip and manufacture that chip and there's only so many sensors right now. I think they're up to like 27 or 28 different kinds. Now there's all, there's all kinds of places where you can just go with a design and get a chip made. So they help clients do that. Then they inject code into that chip that takes the measurements and readies it for dissemination to the web. Then they interface with all different kinds of connectivity like you know Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and cellular signals, etc. pull it up to the cloud, process it so that, for example, a, a power company... Can put those tiny little chips on all of its utility poles, and know instantly if a pole has fallen down in a storm. Now, think about that. Today, if that happens, you know that there's a problem somewhere, mostly because you have inconvenienced customers who are suddenly calling you, but you don't know exactly where it's happened. Sure. And you have to spend a fair amount of time figuring it figuring out. that yeah. out. And you don't. Yeah. And so, your whole dispatch function is inefficient, and you have pissed off customers now imagine if you knew exactly when and where there was a failure in every single pole in your system that could make for a much better system yeah. and there's lots i think of analogies of things like that that eventually are enabling technologies that are only beginning to be applied today usually not in financial services that will ultimately become very very helpful in the financial service environment as well
0: yeah it's fascinating it, I want to leave a little time to turn to some of my favorite closing questions. So, Seth, what is your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan? Gosh,
1: my favorite sports moment. I don't think I have, I have just one. Also, as a contrarian, it's, it's always hard to go with something that's like a crowd pleaser. Gosh, I, <laughs> I really, I hate to punt on a question, but I, look, I think that what's, what's great is when you have Underdogs who somehow prevail in the face of overwhelming odds, but I think what I, I can't really come up with one that sort of epitomizes that more than any other.
0: How about as a participant?
1: Well, I'm I'm not the greatest athlete. I got to say, so <laughs> my my any time I've been on any kind of winning team in general, I've been pretty pretty proud. Or any any time, for example, when I was. Um, when I was a graduate student at Oxford, I managed to make it onto my cricket team, mostly because the Oxford College I was in only had about sixty students, and <laughs> so it was it was not a high bar. But I, I did manage to have a batting average of thirteen, which for a Yank on a cricket team was a really good good number. Cool.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: My father was is an academic, so he he was always very avid for knowledge and was very focused on not just the knowledge in any one discipline, but thinking that it was most interesting to look at where there were interstices or gaps between different disciplines, where there were things that basically people weren't connecting, but that might somehow be related. But if you can connect them, you can actually see something that other people aren't seeing.
0: What information do you read that others might not know about?
1: Wow. Well, I, I am kind of omnivorous. One thing I would say is I, sometimes fiction is really more illuminating than anything else um, for you know, sort of giving you perspective on, on things. For example, you know, I've always found it's really, really hard in this day and age to make sense of a world in which there is, there is so much terrorism that is suddenly taking hold. Why is that happening? There's a wonderful book called the association of small bombs that came out in 2016, which is about essentially understanding one particular bombing incident, what led to it and its consequences. And of course it's fiction, but it it takes this issue and allows it to be accessible through your imagination so that you can actually not be empathetic with, but at least understand in a fictionalized world, how that could happen. And it doesn't seem completely as crazy. I think it's important to sometimes to to let fiction be your guide so that you can experience possible other worlds that could have been our own. And then that opens up the mind to The fact that our own world may not be the one we think it is.
0: What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: You know, I would turn that one around on you. I think the fact is, if you actually knew all those lessons, you wouldn't live a full life. I think the most important thing is to go into decisions understanding that you won't know enough information to make the right decision most of the time, but you have to make the decision anyway. And that you should take perhaps the less obvious path when it feels right to you it's um not always going to be comfortable but it might be more rewarding
0: okay last one it is your waning days you are 100 years old sitting in your rocking chair reading fiction about mars or whatever it might be that's relevant at the time
1: well by then it won't be fiction yes
0: <laughs> uh what advice would you give yourself today
1: well, first of all, I hope I'm still cogent enough. If I reach age one hundred, <laughs> should I'd be in a position <laughs> to give any now advice investors whatsoever. live a
0: long time. You should know that
1: the most important advice is to to take yourself seriously, but not too seriously. To to rec- recognize that the chances are always that the things you are convinced of could well be wrong, and while you have to have a strong set of guiding principles you also have to really be constantly your own devil's advocate.
0: Seth, multifaceted, fascinating as I thought. Thank you so much for the time.
1: Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Ted.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.